Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and I'll be bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, including anything and everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, striving to better inform the general public about mental health-related issues, and also striving to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Well, this is the January 13, 2016 edition of Psychiatry Today, as always pre-recorded for airing on that date, and hope that you've been feeling well since we last got together. Hope you're not paying too much attention to unrealistically ambitious New Year's resolutions. I think the best line that I've heard about New Year's resolutions this year so far is that if you need to change something, you shouldn't wait till the new year to do it. Uh, Start doing it right then and there when you realize something needs to change. Um, So I think that's the best New Year's resolution is to do away with them and instead change what you need to at that time. In any case, let's get to our first topic for tonight. Now, recently there have been many, many controversial reports in the medical literature about supposed links between women taking antidepressants while pregnant and their babies subsequently going on to develop Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, at a higher rate than women who were not taking antidepressants. And there's been, uh, in fact, a recent study uh, toward the latter part of 2015, I believe it was in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, So it's pretty scary when something like that appears in one of the most prestigious medical journals. Um, This obviously would frighten a lot of women uh, from taking their medication while pregnant. And if they were to base their decision not to take medication on faulty data, that could be a serious problem. Why? Well, if a woman needs to be on antidepressants for depression and she is pregnant, she has a serious risk of relapse of depression during pregnancy. At least 50% risk of relapse of depression during pregnancy, never mind the postpartum depression risk, uh, which is also greatly elevated and which gets most of the attention in this situation. Uh, Of course, it's better if a woman not be on any medication, but... There are times when the risk of the mother becoming depressed 
and that causing things like intrauterine fetal growth retardation, uh, in other words, the fetus not growing and developing properly, or um, impaired mother-infant bonding, delayed infant development, all of which can happen from maternal depression, then you look at the risks of the medication where there's never been clear, definite information to say there are obvious risks. There have been trends, there have been studies that show statistically increased incidences of problems like persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, but in the end, nothing that warranted an extra added warning about these medications. With one lone exception, Paxil was tagged with an increased risk of heart abnormalities, although uh, one expert who took another look at the data found that it wasn't really any worse than the incidence of heart abnormalities in the general population. So the bottom line is <clears throat> the overwhelming evidence is that the side effects of depression in pregnancy are probably worse than the side effects of medication. So this is a decision that's very important for women of reproductive age. And if there are those who opt not to take medication during pregnancy or stop their medication because of a fear that their baby will have an increased chance of ADHD, uh, and that's based on faulty information, these are the risks that these women take. So here's a new analysis. comes to us from uh, medical records data from three Massachusetts healthcare systems. And it finds that there is no evidence of increased risk of autism or ADHD with prenatal antidepressant exposure. Um, <clears throat> so they looked at ADHD and autism. Um, and this was published online in the journal Translational Psychiatry. This was a Massachusetts General Hospital-based research team. Uh, they are affiliated with Harvard Medical School. And they found evidence that any increased incidence of autism or ADHD that was found in previous studies was probably associated with the severity of the mother's depression which again is a known risk factor for several neuropsychiatric disorders, the depression is, and not from antidepressant exposure during pregnancy. And <clears throat> according to Dr. Roy Perlis uh, of the Mass General Department of Psychiatry, senior author of the current report and of an earlier study published in 2014, he says the fact that we have now found in two large case-controlled studies no increase in the risk for autism with antidepressant use itself should be very reassuring. Some of the studies that have suggested an association did not account for key differences between mothers who take antidepressants and those who don't, in particular that those taking antidepressants are more likely to have more severe illness. Thank you, Dr. Perlis. This is a point that 
so badly needs to be made and something that I've often talked about when people present data showing, oh, look, here are these women who take antidepressants for depression and look at the problems that they and their children have. And so you can find an association between those problems and the women being on antidepressants. But whereas a lot of people would blame the effect of the antidepressant for the problems the kids have, as Dr. Perlis points out, it is the maternal depression itself that puts these women's children at risk of problems. So in fact, that makes a case, I think, that keeping the mother's depression under better control, if psychotherapy alone will do it, great, but if not, medication with psychotherapy, preferably, then that is safer uh, for the kids, not more dangerous. Now, uh, in the 2014 study, which was published in Molecular Psychiatry, they had analyzed electronic health record data for children born at three partners healthcare systems hospitals, Mass General, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Newton Wellesley Hospital. The current study also included electronic health record from Boston Children's and Beth Israel Deaconess Hospitals, along with information from an additional group of children from the partners electronic health records. The researchers looked at data on more than 1,200 children with an autism-related diagnostic code to that of more than 3,500 demographically matched controlled children with no neuropsychiatric diagnosis. As in the previous study, information regarding the children was paired with data from their mother's electronic health records with specific attention to factors related to the mother's mental health. They also compared data on around 1,700 children with ADHD with that of control group of nearly 3,800. While the incidence of both autism and ADHD was increased in the children of women who had taken antidepressants prior to becoming pregnant, Antidepressant exposure during pregnancy did not increase the incidence of either condition. Maternal psychotherapy, which like pre-pregnancy antidepressant use, indicates more serious depression, did significantly increase the risk of the child having either autism or ADHD, supporting the hypothesis that studies finding an increased incidence actually reflected the risk conferred by maternal depression itself. Now, if that isn't evidence that, look, it's the maternal depression that may increase the risk of autism or ADHD, not medication, I don't know what else is. Uh, I seriously doubt anyone's going to say, oh, look, psychotherapy can increase the risk of autism or ADHD. Right? Of course, that's not going to happen. So the only reasonable conclusion, except for those who are just blindly prejudicial against the idea of psychiatric medication for children and for women who bear children, is that it's the depression, not the medicine, that uh, incurs the risk. Now, 
Dr. Perlis goes on to say, while taking any medicine during pregnancy can be a difficult decision, we hope the results of our two papers, which now cover more than 2,500 children with autism and almost 4,000 with ADHD, will provide some reassurance to women concerned about getting treatment for depression or anxiety during pregnancy. While there are depression treatments that don't involve medication, for some patients, they are not effective, available, or preferred. We want women and the clinicians working with them to be as informed as possible when making this decision. Um, You know, I hail the information that uh, this study brings. It should give women a lot of reassurance and uh, definitely agree that psychotherapy is not as available to women as an alternative treatment as it should be, uh, mostly due to lack of insurance coverage. All right, we'll be right back after this break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist of all the latest mental health-related news. Well, in our earlier segment, we talked about the fact that there is increasing evidence that medication taking during pregnancy is not responsible for an increased incidence of ADHD in uh, those children. Still, studies like this and those that look at the causes for autism leave parents with a lot of questions. All right, well, if it's not antidepressants, for example, what are the known risk factors? Well, there's still too much that we don't know when it comes to autism or ADHD. Uh, But there are some things that we know for a fact will increase 
the incidence of either or both of those neuropsychiatric conditions in children. Uh, this next item, we will focus on a known risk factor for increasing the risk that a kid will have ADHD, and that is lead exposure. Uh, lead exposure is linked to ADHD in kids with a genetic mutation. <clears throat> exposure to small amounts of lead may contribute to ADHD symptoms in children who have a particular gene mutation, according to new research published in the journal Psychological Science. This research is valuable to the scientific community as it bridges genetic and environmental factors and helps to illustrate one possible route to ADHD. Further, it demonstrates the potential to ultimately prevent conditions like ADHD by understanding how genes and environmental exposures combine. To conduct this research, scientists evaluated lead blood level in 386 healthy children aged 6 to 17. Half of the children had been carefully diagnosed with ADHD. All children were within the safe lead exposure range as defined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. And the blood lead level in the sample was typical of the national United States population of children. The analysis showed a heightened association between lead exposure and ADHD symptoms, particularly the hyperactive impulsive type. In those kids with the HFE C282Y gene mutation, a mutation that is present in approximately 10% of United States children. Now, <clears throat> so just to clarify this, they found the association between lead exposure and ADHD, especially, especially with the hyperactive impulsive type. What does that mean? Well, we used to call it ADD. That terminology was changed actually many, many years ago. It has not been officially called ADD for a long time. The current terminology is ADHD, an inattentive type only, or hyperactive impulsive type only, or combined type. And uh, the fact that lead exposure is increasing the risk of the hyperactive impulsive type is, I, I think, uh, combining with previous research just to confirm what we already knew. Now, as for this gene mutation with this unwieldy name, a bunch of letters and numbers, well, the C282Y gene helps to control the effects of lead in the body. And the mutation was spread randomly in the children. Um, the findings of the study are difficult to explain unless lead is in fact part of the cause of ADHD, not just an association. So in other words, the kids who have this mutation in this gene that is responsible for how the body handles lead uh, are at increased risk of ADHD, probably because their bodies aren't able to 
process uh, the lead the same way. They're more vulnerable to brain damage from it. And there you have it. Now, the study also found a gender difference. The lead effects were more robust in males. And that is consistent with previous research specific to neurodevelopmental conditions and gender. Children without this mutation showed amplified symptoms as lead exposure increased, but not as consistently as the kids who did have it. Now, it's very important to say that the scientists are not trying to say that lead is the only cause of ADHD symptoms. Far from it. Nor does this research indicate that lead exposure will guarantee an ADHD diagnosis. Also, far from it. Rather, the study demonstrates that at least this particular environmental pollutant, lead and perhaps others, does play a role in the explanation of ADHD in at least some children with it. Now, you might think, well, why are we still talking about lead exposure in kids and ADHD and it's, uh, you know, pushing the year 2020? Isn't that something that went out in the 70s? I mean, didn't they take the lead out of gasoline? They took the lead out of paint, right? So why is this still an issue? Well, surprisingly, despite United States government regulations, that drastically reduced environmental exposure to lead, this neurotoxin is still found in common objects, such as children's toys and costume jewelry, and it continues to be ingested in small amounts via water from aging pipes, as well as contaminated soil and dust. The findings put scientists one step closer to understanding this complex disorder so that they may provide better clinical diagnoses and treatment options and eventually learn to prevent it. Well, um, it is also more evidence yet of the fact that ADHD is a real disease. It is a physical biological disease. It is not a behavioral or psychological disease. It has physical origins and causes and manifestations. And you can see on highly sophisticated brain scans differences in the structure and development in the brain of these kids. Um, So I guess the take-home message clearly is to be very careful uh, about Uh, toys um, and costume jewelry uh, that children are exposed to uh, really from birth forward. And, you know, if if the pipes in your house are very old, uh, have them tested for lead. Have the water tested for lead, rather. Um, You can certainly uh, ask your water utility provider about that um, and there may actually be um, kits that you can purchase to test uh, but you know there are a lot of dangerous things that can happen from ch- to children from lead exposure so um, very very important to catch that before it happens 
Well, for those of you who yourselves suffer from irritable bowel syndrome, or those of you who may know someone close to you who does, you definitely want to listen up to this next item on tonight's podcast because psychotherapy has a surprising impact for those with irritable bowel syndrome. That's right, psychotherapy, not antidepressant medication or any other type of psychiatric medication. Although irritable bowel syndrome impacts up to 11% of the population, it's a lot more people than you would think, there is no cure for it. But new research may have found a surprisingly effective treatment. A new meta-analysis of 41 clinical trials published in the journal Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology found that irritable bowel sufferers who received psychotherapy had a greater lasting reduction in symptoms over sufferers who had no treatment. The studies that were analyzed asked participants to answer questionnaires about their symptoms at the beginning and the end of treatment. While 75% of the psychotherapy group felt better than the average member of the group that received no treatment, researchers discovered that the effects lasted for 12 months after they underwent psychotherapy. I'll just interject here that this reminds me of the research that's been done on cognitive behavioral therapy as a treatment for insomnia. Um, The people who responded to cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia had better and long-lasting improvement in their sleep than those who took medication. Well, getting back to irritable bowel syndrome, it typically causes recurring abdominal pain, constipation, or diarrhea, and affects 35 million Americans. Symptoms can be so bad that some sufferers say they'd be willing to give up sex for an entire month just to have a month's relief from the pain. Well, to explain the psychotherapy link, the gastrointestinal tract is connected to the nervous system. And irritable bowel syndrome is thought to result from a dysfunction of this brain-gut axis. In a nutshell, the mind can impact the body and vice versa. Psychotherapy seems to be particularly effective because it works to help the patient retain and practice new skills to use for the rest of their life, as opposed to medication which only works as long as you take it. While they only studied the patients for a year, it's possible the effects would last longer than that. Based on the findings, it is recommended that irritable bowel sufferers consider undergoing psychotherapy, especially since doing nothing can create a vicious cycle where symptoms increase anxiety and depression, making the problems worse. However, it should not be taken from this that anyone thinks the symptoms aren't real. Uh, Just because a patient might benefit from psychotherapy does not mean that the symptoms are in their head, and no one should be left with that feeling that that's what irritable bowel syndrome 
is about. It is very real and very much in the gut. All right, we'll take another commercial break. We'll be back with more. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about how psychotherapy can help people who suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. Now, there are psychological underpinnings with IBS. We know about this. Some of them are understood and others are not. But uh, these latest findings support the concept that IBS is what's called multifactorial. There are certainly physical causes and aspects and symptoms of it, but we also know that when people are in any kind of psychological distress, that will aggravate the symptoms. And while there's no cure for IBS, sufferers have options, certainly other than psychotherapy. There's medication to treat the severe diarrhea or constipation, and the intestinal spasms, and certain dietary changes can help as well. But psychotherapy is a beneficial treatment to try based on the evidence of this latest study. Most, if not all, people who suffer with irritable bowel syndrome will report and acknowledge an emotional component. All right, now, Certainly, this is uh, of most interest to people who have irritable bowel syndrome to know that psychotherapy might be a useful additional treatment to consider beyond what they're already doing. Uh, But I think in general, it's more and more evidence that the mind, the brain, 
certainly is not a distinct, isolated part of the body. There are interconnections between the brain and everywhere else in the body, and it's very, very clear that stress and other negative mind states can aggravate medical problems. And uh, so it's, to me, very powerful that people who have a serious medical illness can get better with the addition of psychotherapy, uh, a non-medical treatment uh, as it's considered to be. Um, now, of course, like uh, always when we talk about psychotherapy as a treatment for any medical problem, be that psychiatric or not, uh, we can't fail to mention that it's very difficult for people to access psychotherapy because insurance companies discriminate against it as a treatment. They uh, often fail to cover it at all, or if they do, there are a lot of restrictions on how they pay for psychotherapy, either limiting the number of visits you can have per year and even sometimes lifetime caps on how many therapy visits you can have. Um, and uh, since insurance companies discriminate against it in this way and the reimbursements that they propose for psychotherapists are so pathetically poor, uh, many, if not most, therapists don't accept health insurance, thus further increasing the cost and restricting the access for patients. Um, <clears throat> Hopefully, but um, sadly, unlikely, uh, evidence like this would convince health insurance companies that it is a legitimate medical treatment and should be more widely covered and available. Even legislation that's been passed in Washington, so-called parity bills, to mandate that health insurance companies cover psychiatric and psychological treatments uh, the same as other medical treatments has not been able to fix this problem. Nonetheless, at least those who are able to access and afford psychotherapy as a treatment who also suffer from irritable bowel syndrome, uh, the good news is they now have a valuable treatment option to alleviate their symptoms. Now, Interestingly enough, I have another article about a different medical problem. And in this case, it's not talking about how psychotherapy will help that medical problem. It's taking antidepressant medications. Um, this is not exactly a new finding, but another study confirms that when people who are diabetic take medication for depression, it helps them keep better control over their diabetes. People who have both diabetes and depression may have an easier time keeping their blood sugar levels under control if they also take medication to address their mental health symptoms, according to a new study. Diabetics can be more prone to depression and stress than other individuals. And these mental health problems are linked to increased risks of dangerously high blood sugar levels and other serious complications. When diabetics do get depressed, however, taking antidepressants is linked to 95%
higher odds that their blood sugar will be well controlled, according to the current study. They don't know the mechanism by which the use of antidepressants is associated with better blood sugars in those patients with both conditions. It's possible that when depression improves, people may be more likely to follow a healthy diet, to exercise, to check their blood sugars, and to keep up with medications for diabetes. Scientists are also exploring whether there's a physiologic connection between the two diseases, which might mean shifts in stress hormones tied to antidepressant use might also affect blood sugars. Regardless of the mechanism, this study adds to the evidence that it is important to properly diagnose and treat depression in diabetics. Researchers reviewed electronic medical records for about 1,400 diabetics, including lab tests for blood sugar and prescription data on antidepressant use from 2008 to 2013. On average, patients were around 62 years old. Most were obese. All of them had type 2 or adult-onset diabetes, which happens when the body can't properly use or make enough of the hormone insulin to convert blood sugar into energy. Many had other health problems, too, such as high blood pressure or cholesterol. Most, that is 1,134 of them, didn't suffer from depression, but the study included 225 people being treated for depression and 40 individuals who were diagnosed with depression but were not taking medication for it. Researchers estimated average blood sugar levels over the course of several months by measuring the percentage of hemoglobin, the protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen, that is coated with sugar. This sugar-coated form of hemoglobin is known as hemoglobin A1c. This is uh, a lab value that diabetes patients are very familiar with. An ideal level is somewhere around 5. Um, most diabetics who keep it uh, around 7 or at least below 8 are doing great. Now, <clears throat> the uh, overall, only 44% of diabetics in the study had their uh, hemoglobin A1c uh, around 7%. The average was 7.7%. About 51% of people with treated depression had their blood sugar under control, compared to only 35% of those with untreated depression. Now, one limitation of the study is that researchers couldn't determine whether treating depression led to better blood sugar control or whether lowering blood sugar eases depression symptoms. The study was published online in the journal Family Practice. Now, both of these scenarios are possible. In other words, treating the depression could have improved blood sugar control or the other way around. But it's also important for patients to know 
that certain antidepressants and antipsychotics, which are sometimes used as adjunctive treatments for depression, uh, you may have heard of and seen advertisements on TV and in print media for Abilify. Uh, Abilify is designed to be added on to an antidepressant when you're taking it yet still feel depressed. That is an antipsychotic drug. So is Seroquel, so is Zyprexa, so is Rexolti. These are all used as add-on medications for depression, but they can all increase the risk of weight gain and poor blood sugar control. And there are a couple of antidepressant medications that can do that. Paxil most notoriously. Uh, and Remeron. Remeron is good for about 10 to 15 pounds before you turn around. And, and then uh, the good news is you're done after that. Whereas on other antidepressants or antipsychotics, you can just continue to gain weight. Uh, now... It's important to have medications such as these prescribed by a healthcare provider who will be following along closely enough to detect and determine when changes are needed. Uh, these risks of weight gain and poor blood sugar control shouldn't deter diabetics from seeking depression treatment. Uh, getting depression under control by whatever means can help people overcome their inertia that prevents them from making their best efforts to deal with their diabetes. Well, uh, I haven't read the entire paper that was published in Family Practice, but certainly uh, I think it's fair to say that this summary article about the research completely misses the boat as to what the mechanism may be uh, as to how treating <clears throat> the depression with antidepressants helps diabetes control. If you're acutely depressed, that increases the risk of increased circulation of stress hormones, including cortisol. Cortisol increases uh, blood sugar, increases insulin resistance, and uh, this is the direct mechanism. So if you take antidepressant medication, you keep the ravages of this stress hormone under control, of course it's going to be easier to keep your blood sugar under control. Uh, that's fairly obvious, and it's been well known for quite some time that if you're depressed, your blood sugar fluctuates worse, and also the other way around. If your blood sugar fluctuates widely, it's going to interfere with feeling well. All right, well, we'll take another commercial break. We'll be back with more. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. 
Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Here's an article about a potential new use for exposure therapy. You've probably heard of exposure therapy if you follow a lot of mental health-related topics. It's often used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder. But now, apparently, there's evidence it may be helpful for depression, which is actually somewhat surprising that it would be effective for depression. If you've experienced a traumatic, life-altering event, you might be surprised to learn that one treatment for such trauma, the exposure therapy, involves repeatedly reliving the terrible event. Sounds more harmful than helpful, right? But people who experience their fears over and over again, with the help of a therapist in exposure therapy, can actually learn to control those fears. The technique is used to treat a growing list of mental health conditions that include anxiety, phobias, and as I mentioned, obsessive-compulsive behaviors, long-standing grief, and now even depression. Well, how does exposure therapy work? Exposure therapy can seem similar to desensitization. People with post-traumatic stress disorder, including combat veterans and rape and assault survivors, may experience nightmares and flashbacks that bring the traumatic event back. They may also avoid situations that can trigger similar memories and may become upset, tense, or have problems sleeping after the trauma. Edna B. Foa, 
the director of the Center for the Treatment and Study of Anxiety at the University of Pennsylvania, explains exposure therapy for PTSD to her patients this way. We are going to help you talk about the trauma so that you can process and digest it and make it finished business. While you won't forget about the trauma entirely, it's not going to haunt you all the time. She reassures her patients that they won't be exposed to dangerous situations. She also tells them, you are going to find out that you are stronger than you think. Although exposure therapy is considered a short-term treatment, 8 to 12 sessions is common, people with more severe conditions and those with obsessive-compulsive behaviors may need more time. We already know that exposure therapy works for many conditions. For post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, according to Matthew Friedman, doctor who is in the senior advisor for the Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD, uh, it's one of the best treatments we have. A 2007 report from the Institute of Medicine also found the technique to be effective for PTSD. Dr. Foa published a study in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology that showed a reduction in PTSD and depression symptoms in female survivors of assault after 9 to 12 sessions. And a 2014 study in JAMA Psychiatry found that adding exposure therapy to cognitive behavioral therapy was more effective at relieving long-standing grief than cognitive behavioral therapy plus supportive counseling. This may seem a little bit confusing, the idea of combining exposure therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy. After all, isn't exposure therapy a type of cognitive behavioral therapy? And indeed it is, but it's something that's very specific and uh, unique in itself in terms of a type of treatment, whereas cognitive behavioral therapy just generally uh, tries to get people to change their uh, negative, anxious thought patterns and replace them with more adaptive and functionally positive thinking patterns. Now, apparently exposure therapy is effective but different when it comes to being a treatment for depression. While research is still ongoing, some experts believe exposure therapy can be helpful even for serious depression. Depression and PTSD share some common features like flashbacks and memory flooding, but there are some important differences too. With depression, it's not necessarily a trauma, but a whole store of memories associated with being a failure, worthless, and defective. A depressed person's encounter with a rude clerk at a store may trigger thoughts that seem to back up their fears, that no one likes them, that they are worthless, and so on. 
in 20 to 24 sessions of exposure therapy, patients can be persuaded to re-examine the events that trigger their worthless messages. Then they can reinterpret them in a more positive light and also build up the positive emotion system. But some people with depression may be fearful of having positive emotions. Paradoxically, if they start to have hope, they may begin to fear that things may fall apart again and get more depressed. This really is just a feature of the depression that is such a hard driver of this negative pessimistic thinking. Now, how do patients get started with exposure therapy? Well, the first few sessions can be distressing, admits Dr. Foa, but the distress of exposure therapy usually lasts only three or four weeks. Only? Easy for her to say. Plus, patients usually work their way up to scarier situations by first tackling challenges that are somewhat less scary. For example, someone with a social phobia or fear of public places may be advised to go to a supermarket during a time when it's not busy. After that, they may visit the store when it's more crowded. At first, it's natural to feel upset, but if the person stays long enough, their anxiety will go down. In the beginning, the person is afraid they won't be able to tolerate it, but in the end, when they show themselves that they can, then they're a winner. Homework is an important part of exposure therapy for depression, as it is when the therapy is used to treat other illnesses. So the patient will do exercises outside of their sessions. That could include listening to a recording of the, an account of the trauma or performing a task that could trigger memories of the event. And then at subsequent visits, uh, the patient talks through their experiences with their therapist. Now, if you are thinking you might want to try exposure therapy, certainly get a clear expectation and explanation of uh, how that will go with your therapist. And uh, to find an exposure therapy specialist, the article says you can start by asking your family doctor for a referral. Quite frankly, I doubt that's going to be productive, nothing against family doctors, but this is very highly specialized uh, psychotherapy treatment, and I don't know that most primary care physicians are going to be able to tell you where to access that. The article has, a, I think, what's a very helpful suggestion. It says, contact organizations like the American Psychological Association, or even better, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. It can help you locate qualified practitioner. And the article suggests that veterans can contact their local VA clinic for more information. Well, <clears throat> it certainly is a novel idea uh, the use of exposure therapy 
which again is designed to either have people cope better with specific fears or phobias or to uh, alleviate post-traumatic stress. A novel idea to use the same principles to treat depression. Um, I, I think I would like to see more data on how this works. Um, and it would have to be compared to other types of psychotherapy to really get an idea of how effective it is. In other words, you'd have to take a population of patients with depression, uh, give them some rating scales to make sure you had a, a fairly homogeneous population, and then divide them into different groups according to treatments, uh, traditional just supportive psychotherapy, uh, just standard cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy, and then maybe some other type of control group who would just have, um, you know, informational sessions as opposed to therapy sessions and uh, see to what extent people improved on the exposure therapy according to other groups. The other thing that I think it's important to mention is that while exposure therapy is considered the gold standard for treatment of PTSD in combat veterans in VA clinics, there are a large number of combat veterans who absolutely find exposure therapy to be uh, torture and not helpful at all. You know, these treatments are not one for all, one size fits all. Uh, there has to be flexibility to apply an approach that is most beneficial to an individual given patient and most acceptable. All right, there was a study looking at veterans that found acceptability of exposure therapy is not so consistent, and so there need to be other options available. Finally, again, I think it's very important, great idea, look up the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. That's the best way, I think, to find a qualified therapist for cognitive behavioral therapy of any type, including exposure therapy. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope till we get together next time you have a wonderful stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.